Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Libertarian moment. So, Richard, you, my friend, uh, as is your want, decades ahead of the curve here. We are now apparently living in the libertarian moment. There's There's been buzz about this for the past several years. You've had uh, Rand Paul, elements of the Tea Party that have libertarian sympathies. And now there's this recent piece in the New York Times magazine sort of hailing the newfound relevance of libertarianism in American politics. So let's start this way. Let me actually take a step back from this first and ask you if this is the libertarian moment. Uh, why hasn't there been one before or, or, or has there? I mean Hayek was a very influential figure. Milton Friedman was a very influential figure. R Ronald Reagan, not only a president of the United States but a very successful one, really committed the Republican Party to limited government in a new and, and distinct way. So do, to what extent, looking back at that stuff historically, to what extent does libertarianism, qua libertarianism, get credit for that? Well, I think in effect that the question you asked has got the right answer. That is, if you start looking back, there was a serious intellectual movement. It was Friedman, Stigler, Becker, um, and Hayek and so forth. I think that it was quite clear that somebody like Reagan actually read and understood these people and was trying to move government imperfectly to be sure in that direction. There is no question that if you start looking at the intellectual literature of this period, most of the serious work on the takings question and the protection of private property was written exactly in that period. My own book, Takings, Private Property and the Power of Eminent Domain, was a 1985 book and it sparked uh, lots of other people writing rather different things. When I wrote about the same subject again in, in sort of sequel form in 2008, I, I think it's fair to say that the public could scarcely be less interested in this particular topic. It was a Obama administration coming forward and social justice was much more important than private property. Uh, the early movement, I think, did have some serious uh, beneficial effects in terms of changing at least the second derivative, i.e. slowing down the rate of the growth of government. Uh, some of it influenced the early stuff in Clinton because uh, he was basically a free trader in much of what he did and was certainly a right-wing Democrat, by which I mean somebody who was in favor of modest redistribution, but certainly understood the power of market forces to create innovation and was willing to work for such things as welfare reform and free trade under NAFTA and so forth. Um, the difference between that movement and this movement is that movement was essentially done in the age before the tweet and the social media. And what happens today is that when people decide that they're going to become libertarian, they become libertarian in 140 characters or less. And not only do they do that, but in many times the issues that are really of concern to today's now generation are actually not the issues that were the concern of the earlier generation. Uh, so, for example, the issue on drugs, where I think there's a strong case that could be made for deregulation of many kinds of drugs, complicated issue to be sure, has become an absolutely libertarian bellwether. And, and the thing that I find so odd about it is that notwithstanding the clearly dangerous nature of many of these drugs, the inability of children to digest them, the fact that impurities could work their way into the stream of distribution, that tax and regulation systems may be better than total deregulation kinds of systems. Uh, this has become a kind of a real warrior cry. And I find myself 
myself thinking, well, maybe they've gone a little bit too far. And the second thing, by way of contrast, is that when it came to foreign affairs, I think that Reagan was a libertarian in the following sense. If he thought that there was force that was going to attack the United States or one of his allies, he was in general prepared to meet it. And there's no question that when he said, tear down that wall, it was a libertarian moment of the highest order. And now, in effect, the libertarian movement is essentially, well, maybe Mr. Obama will have to bomb somebody in Fallujah or by Mosul, but please don't commit ground troops of the United States overseas, no matter how terrible the wreckage is everywhere else. So the economic issues that I really cared about, minimum wage laws, labor unions, deregulation uh, of various kinds of industries like you know the, the airline industry and so forth, sensible regulation in environmental areas, those things have kind of disappeared from the map. And when you read the Draper story, I, I find myself, you know, not being a curmudgeon, but saying I like the word, but I don't necessarily like the stuff that's going on. And of course, he's writing this as a newspaper story. So the party atmosphere is the dancing, the spandex comes in there as well. And the libertarian part of this is essentially a small fraction of a rather larger whole. And it's just not the way in which state old folks like myself try to do business. And, and so I'm not part of this particular libertarian movement, although obviously, if you sat down and talked to these people individually about issues of common concern, I suspect you would find a fair measure of agreement on at least some of the issues in question, not necessarily the two that I just mentioned, drugs and foreign affairs. So let me ask you then about the implications that may stem from the case that you just laid out, Richard. One of the things that's striking when you think about libertarianism as a, as a political movement, there is a unique set of circumstances there insofar as you know, if you think about the Republican Party, the conservative movement is a subset of that bigger political party. And on the left, you know, the progressive movement is a subset of the Democratic Party. In libertarianism, the daylight between the sort of philosophical side of it and the political side of it's always been pretty small. And I wonder if there is a natural cap as a result of that for precisely the reasons that you've just described. You've described a couple of shortcomings which are characteristic of philosophical movements and not political one, which is A, an inability to prioritize when you're talking about things like the legalization of drugs being up front and B, an, an inability to compromise, an idea that you know if you read this Draper piece, you see the word consistency in there a lot, mm. which you could conceivably read as, as purity, the idea that you've got to take everything to its, its furthest logical extent. Are those things that you think in the end maybe sort of hem in or, or cap – the ability of, of libertarianism to have a bigger political influence. Well, I think that's part of it. I also think, in effect, that as I mentioned in the piece that I wrote criticizing fairly sharply Paul Krugman, uh, that libertarians often are very weak in the way in which they deal with two things. One, uncertainty, and two, the substitution of state remedies for private remedies. And the uncertainty question comes up all the time. Do you stop somebody from driving a car? Well, if you knew for certain that he was about to kill somebody, of course you stop him and if you knew for certain that he was going to get to the end of the journey safely, of course you would let him go. But you don't know this. So what do you do in the interim? Uh, do you allow individuals to bring suits to stop other drivers from suing? Well, the transaction – or from driving rather. The transactions costs are prohibitive. So we develop a licensing system and for the most part, it's a pretty good licensing system. What it does is it weeds out the worst of the drivers and then for the rest of the drivers, we have a two-part system. We have police who enforce the speeding laws with fines and with license suspensions based on more information than you could possibly get at the time that people initially sign up and we allow personal – 
and your reactions by those people who are injured by other drivers. So this is a tripartite system. And it seems to me that nobody who's serious about the way in which regulation should work would say, we have to get rid of one of these three components. All of them are essential. And when you start putting things in rather stark form, it gives an opening to people like Krugman who really don't spend a lot of time thinking about how libertarians of my ilk think about the world to say, you guys are crazy. Um, you really think it's obnoxious to have to walk inside a DMV. I don't think it's obnoxious. In fact, I think the University of Illinois, whether it's not the university, the state of Illinois does a lot better in running its DMV department than it does in running about just about anything else. And the point is, when you have a licensing system which is directed towards a narrow task of competence, everybody seems to be reasonably comfortable if you could keep the corruption and the money out of it. When you start talking about these licenses as to whether or not you could build a marina or whether or not you could build a new power plant or a railroad and so forth, you may need these kinds of situations. But it's quite clear to anybody who's followed this closely that the licensing procedures and the permit procedures have gone just way out of whack, much too much required, much too soon in the process, and that you'd have to reorient it. And so the correct answer for a libertarian is to say, well, look at licensing procedures, understand why in many cases they're needed because private rights of action don't work and then try to see whether or not these are designed to suppress competition on the one hand or whether or not they're designed to prevent serious injuries on the other and that ironically was the central constitutional inquiry uh, that the classical liberals on the old court made before the 1937 revolution said it's okay if you want to turn a competitive industry into a cartel so you don't have to worry about the line between competition on the one hand and safety on the other competition and health because you could regulate both. The shorthand when we talk about libertarianism these days, you hear it all the time, is that this is the the home now for people who are economically conservative and socially liberal. Do you buy that as a reasonable shorthand for what libertarianism is? Well, I mean to some extent, although as I've mentioned to you before, the economically conservative sometimes doesn't get all the nuances right and the socially liberal situation is, is, is much more difficult to read. I would hate to have to exclude from the libertarian movement devout Christians who want to run their own lives in their own way and who believe in a series of moral codes that the rest of the public may not share. And so the idea that somehow the free love is a minimum condition for being a part of a libertarian movement strikes me as – as a mistake. What you really want to do is to say that questions of sexuality for the most part, that is unless they involve serious contagion and things like that, are probably properly left to the individual. So on same-sex marriage, you can take, I think, a very powerful position uh, that the state ought not to deny its monopoly power of issuing licenses to same-sex couples. You could also take that same piece with respect to polygamy. And what's interesting about all of the champions of the gay rights movement is the moment polygamy gets on the table, they either disappear from the conversation or they become quasi-status. We're only a believer in two people getting married. Three is an absolute abomination. Well, where do you get that from as a libertarian who's worried about whether or not there's deception between the parties or force and fraud against third parties? And, you know, polygamy has been subject to massive prosecution in the United States associated with the Mormon church in a case called Reynolds against the United States from the late 1870s. And it seems to me that if you're careful about the libertarian tradition, uh, you ought to show some respect for the polygamists amongst us as it were. And yet I don't see amongst modern libertarians any inclination whatsoever to help those who are politically powerless on an issue which I think raises important matters of first principle. 
So the last thing that I'll ask you on this, um, there's all this optimism going around at the moment about this libertarian moment. So let's ta- let's take the alternative view. Let's take the pessimistic one, which is the longer view, to say that over the past century or so, you have had arguably wave after wave of progressive triumph. The the first about a century ago with Woodrow Wilson and, and for that matter Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, then the New Deal, the Great Society, the Obama era. And the argument there is that the longer the view you take, the more apparent it becomes that the people who are in favor of limited government, individual rights, free markets, they're losing. And sometimes by inches at a time, sometimes by miles, but even the victories are sort of largely defensive in nature. It's not really clawing back a lot of real estate. With that in mind, um, would you accept that argument and, and how optimistic are you that the nation really could turn in a more libertarian direction to counteract that over the long run? Well, when I said earlier that Reagan changed the second derivative, what I said is he slowed right. down the rate of increased state power. That was right. an earlier version of what you have just said. I think it's pretty clear that occasionally we do have moments where we back off. Airline deregulation under the late Carter years was something in which that actually took place. But then there's always the form of re-regulation. So you may not have the CAB, but then you start having regulations about landing rights or connecting flights or whatever it may well be in an effort for the regulators to gain it back. George Stigler was always very pessimistic on this. And what his particular view was, a new industry comes up, nobody's figured out how to regulate it. And it flourishes. Then somebody comes along and figures out, yes, we can subject it to regulation. And the old political forces of protectionism come out. And we can see that going on right now with things like the internet, where we can regulate them because we need net neutrality or we could regulate them because we have to worry about offensive conduct or content and something of that sort. Um, I do think that being forewarned is to be forearmed. I think it is possible to make the case the other way. But I want to end on this particular note. The last way in which you're going to be able to make the case is to take this form of libertarianism, which doesn't seem to worry about the kinds of collective action problems that really matter. And so, you know, Krugman in his article start talking about nuisance law. He doesn't understand the field at all, and he sort of assumes that a libertarian is helpless to deal with generalized pollution through state action, when it's exactly the opposite. If it turns out that private remedies are inefficient, the substitution of an efficient state remedy damages nobody and helps the overall situation. So it's a technical improvement over the individual tort action, and one ought to phrase it. But if people start basically putting forward a defense of libertarianism as saying no regulation with respect to drugs, even though there's serious purity problems, no regulation with respect to pollution, no DMV so that you can't keep people off the road, they're going to get slaughtered. And what you have to do, in effect, is to make the libertarian position a classical liberal position in which externalities like nuisances and so forth and pollution can be guarded against in multiple ways, always being aware that you can't suppress competition under the guise, and then to figure out how coordination problems, the creation of network industries and complicated road systems can be a proper mode for public interaction in the early uh, 20th and late 19th century cases, haltingly, but in some cases quite accurately, did try to address all the rate regulation issues associated with natural monopolies and franchise monopoly and so forth. It's very hard to get modern libertarians to want to go back into that level of complexity. But if they don't do so, they will lose the argument that they're libertarian crazies. That's what people like Krugman try to do. They don't want to talk 
specifically about people like myself, it's much easier to get some guy who's a blogger and then to shriek that he has managed to talk about things that are just crazy. Even judges do this from time to time. There was a very thoughtful opinion uh, in part uh, by Janice Rogers Brown and she was joined by, I think it was Judge Sintel. But when they defend markets, they start defending cowboy capitalism. That's their word, not my word. I don't want to use that word in a public kind of speech for libertarianism because it suggests that you're running over somebody's range. So for libertarianism to work, it has to be able to project a the hope for opportunity and growth that it projects, but be an awareness that the optimal size of government is not zero. To say that he who governs best governs least can't be right because that would mean we want no government at all, which clearly has to be wrong. So you have to figure out what government you want and why, and that's what a responsible classical liberal slash limited government libertarian tries to do. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.